Bam. What's up, dear listener? And welcome to another episode of the Torch Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nathan Lubahusen, and with me as always is the amazing Devin Bindle. We want you to join us on this journey of relentless curiosity and normalizing civil discussions about everything from our fundamental rights to political philosophy to finance to foreign policy. All of this from two regular dudes giving you our valuable time on a Saturday morning that hate politics and love human flourishing. How generous are we? Yes. Right, Devin? Aren't we? <laughs> How's it going? How are you doing? Yeah. I'm good, doing great, man. Uh, it's a beautiful Saturday here in Denver, 73 and sunny. Um, house still smells like curry from dinner last night, and I can't cool. figure out where it's coming from. So I that's driving that. me nuts. Yeah, it was All delicious. Right. I also don't want to smell it for three days. Yeah. Uh, Asian curry or uh, Indian curry? I guess they're both uh, Asian. Uh, right. Yeah, come on. <laughs> You're talking to the geography, annoying geography guy here. Um, it, it was a, a Indian green curry. It was delicious. But oh. of course, I had to add a bunch of stuff to it because I can't just use, I can't just follow the recipe. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that sounds delicious. I love curry so much. We're not sheeple politically. People that follow <laughs> the recipe, I just can make all all kinds of assumptions about them. <laughs> yes. I'd say if you, if you follow the recipe to a tea, <laughs> then chances, chances of you being a sheep go up exponentially yeah. loser <laughs> we're talking a lot of uh, off mic about sheep uh sheep and um what that means and and things like that but we we uh we're actually doing peek behind the curtain here we're doing uh back-to-back episodes so uh we just did a uh, our episode yesterday on the welfare state and uh the libertarian answer to that um and today we wanted to go into a different area of uh, f- uh libertarian small state human individual liberty uh fundamentalism and um, you guys saw it in the title but we want to talk about property rights today any overarching Thoughts on property rights, Devin? Is this something you're familiar with? I know you're 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 always newer to libertarianism and political exploration than I thought. And yeah, um, I've always been super excited about politics, um, but and so kind of had the under uh, underwriting understanding of it, and I'm really just getting into it and excited about it has brought out a lot of information. Um, but property rights is one area where I, I would never call myself an expert. And so I'm excited to kind of learn uh, along with the rest of the listeners uh, throughout this podcast. And, uh, you know, hopefully on the other side of it, come out, you know, uh, with a better understanding than I have now. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, property rights on its face, if you don't know a whole lot about it, sounds like like a legal technicality or legal mumbo jumbo, uh, or that it you know wouldn't apply to much, especially if you're not like a landowner. I, I mean, I think people think uh, people that own lots of land far out from the city, um, but property rights have so so many more foundational implications um, that to the point where you know, the title, we think it's the cornerstone of society. And it's the fundamental relationship between whatever government should exist, and uh, the people itself is to maintain property rights. And we'll get into the the different aspects of property rights and how it leads to everything uh, to uh, leads to everything from 
like your relationship to your individual body and your autonomy and the non-aggression principle or zero aggression principle um, to literal property, to things that you own, to real estate. It's, it just has so many different foundational implications. And so the claim that the overarching claim that we're going to make here is that if, uh, if society was based on property rights and simply upholding property rights and laws were just maintaining property rights, that everything else would kind of figure itself out, which is kind of yeah. a bold claim, right? So let's work I mean, through it and see if that bears out. Extremely bold claim, uh, definitely something that I've always agreed with. I've always, uh, I've always said like, you know, it, the the simple claim of before you even told me what the non-aggression principle was, it's just like any law should only constitute: um, am I infringing on someone else's life or their property or their things? And outside of that, uh, most laws are wasteful and useless. Um, and, and so this kind of lives in that world and mm -hmm. so i'm excited to explore it a little bit yeah absolutely this um we talked about the non-aggression or like the new trendy the new name for the um non-aggression principle is the zero aggression principle and that like it's an autistic libertarian distinction that we don't have <laughs> to go into now but uh but the nap or the the zap the zap um is uh what we'll be referencing here but uh, if the foundation for society is the non-aggression principle, like how, how do you determine uh, what is a violation? Um, setting up what property rights are determines the thing that is being violated or not violated. So um, we'll get into more details on that. And um, this, even if it sounds like a nerdy title, this has a, a really cool, this is really cool foundational information for thinking about politics and laws and the role of government in our lives through this lens. I think it's just so useful and allows you to stay consistent. And the inspiration for this episode uh, was actually a, um, a lot of excerpts from a book called The Uncommunist Manifesto. Um, it's by Alex Svetsky and Mark Moss. Um, it's, it's really cool. It's a short little 80 page little handbook thing. And um, as the title might imply, it's just a refutation of the famous Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx in 1848. And, you know, it's considered to be one of the founding documents of, of communism. And so uh, this book kind of tears apart why that the Communist Manifesto is, is nonsense, nonsensical, and doesn't lead to human flourishing, and why the Uncommunist un Manifesto does. And so the fundamental divide between the Uncommunist Manifesto and Karl Marx's Manifesto is the, the different, the opposite approach to property rights. Um, the Uncommunist Manifesto believes that property rights are based on the individual and they shouldn't be violated. And communism, in the words of Marx and Lenin themselves, is the abolition of private property. Yeah, so like, uh, you couldn't be more divided on yeah, the view of and, private uh, property. What's so nice about this is it allows for another, like what got people so excited about communism in the beginning was that it paints this beautiful picture at the end of the tunnel of this possible like perfect society that they felt like they could force people into. Um, where the Uncommunist Manifesto, it still paints that beautiful picture and it still um, allows for this beautiful ending that I think we all you know, have some desire for, um, but it gets there in a way where you're not being forced into it. And we all can kind of move in the same direction together without infringing on anybody's, um, you know, personal property, their personal, um, you know, 
life livelihood um and, and so i think if anything it's it's an even more beautiful picture um than and it's actually attainable in comparison to the communist manifesto yeah what's awesome about adopting individual property rights as the foundation for society is that people get to choose what they want to do so um, individuals can adhere to this um individualism and private property rights framework but if people but part of property rights is, is voluntary association. So if a group of individuals decided to voluntarily associate and form their own little communist societies where they collectively decide to give up private property rights, like that isn't a violation of anybody else's. It, be, it becomes a violation of individual property rights when you force it upon an entire society through the means of government, through violence. Um, but we don't the the same generosity isn't extended in the opposite direction um if we moved to a communist country we don't get to opt out of that communist system and have our own individual property rights the collective right. property owned by the state is is forced on us and so i think there's like there's immediate objective moral superiority there to individual property rights that we already have a leg up and like we get to sleep easy at night knowing we're just better people than the communists yeah i mean and <laughs> I think there's this, uh, I think there's a natural like disdain uh, and love at the same time that exists in different places of the United States towards communism, uh, and and I think it we we've offered up the only other solution a lot of times in the United States is uh, is a controlled capitalism, um, and, and so. I think that this allows for a totally different point of view and a totally different perspective on a way to achieve some of the beautiful goals that exist um, within communism, uh, but at the same time uh, allow for a lot of the freedoms and uh, that the people that are on the other side of the fence are really hoping to to grab at. Uh, and and if people want to give out their property rights, like you had said, it's still allowed um, within this system. And so it's like, there's rarely a win-win in the world and this kind of uh is that and and so like i think it's a, an extremely important thing to uh, at least uh, observe and see if uh, this makes sense for you as a person yeah and uh, we've already had to stop ourselves a few times this episode isn't so much a refutation of communism the book that is the inspiration for a lot of the points in this episode is a refutation of communism but we're going to try to focus on uh establishing and defining what is what is private property what are private property mm -hmm. rights and like how is it how does it lead to how is simplifying the goal of society and the relationship between people and their government to these fundamental property rights how does that create a better society um there's all kinds of opportunities to tear apart Karl marx and communism yeah. and other episodes uh but it'll be a 10-hour podcast if we try to do all that right now so um <laughs> So yeah, the, the claim we're making here is uh, the foundation of libertarianism and uh, individualism in the relationship between government and society uh, is that it should be the preservation of property rights. And we'll get into what the definition of that is in a second. Um, but that's all the government should do. If they're not preserving life, liberty, and property, it's not a responsibility of the government. They shouldn't be doing it. It is better left to uh, decentralized individuals voluntarily associating to figure out anything beyond that. And it's, and it's possible. Um, uh, if you, if you create this foundation and draw harsh boundaries for the government that they can't extend past 
just simply preserving private property rights. Um, everything else will take care of itself in a natural and a decentralized in an evolutionary way. Um, so uh, I think the modern left are a lot of people that don't think in the framework of private property very often. Or like, all right, what the hell do you mean by private property? Do you mean like the large mansions of the super rich who exploit the poor? To quote the Uncommunist Manifesto. And uh, yeah. I would say that the libertarians and the Austrians would respond, it doesn't matter. Yes, but not just that. Uh, private yeah. property um, involves that plus a lot more, not just that. Um, a couple other quotes from the book I wanted to mention that in order for a system of competence to work, the same rules must apply to all participants, which is why we say it doesn't matter um, in, in response to that large mansion assumption. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so um, when you say the the same rules must apply uh, to all participants, um, obviously, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, we feel doesn't exist uh, now. How could we, how could we get to um, you know the same rules that apply for everyone without? Is there any fear of exploitation by the rich, um, if they seemingly have the same rules that apply to everyone, or is that going to fix some of the problems that exist uh, with that today? Uh, I think the, the the more laws you have and the more complicated that laws are, the more potential there is for the rules to not apply equally to everyone. Just because it's harder to it's harder to follow the rules of the game if there are so many rules, yeah, that, um, you get away with breaking some of the rules. So, um, so that's a that's an argue that's a strong argument for simplicity in in the role of government. Is if they're just preserving life, liberty, and property, it's pretty hard to get away with. Um, pretty hard to sneak something past the goalie, you know? And so yeah. um, that's why I love how simple it is. Um, I, in terms of the rich exploiting the poor, I think the, the best way to talk about that is to reference a specific example, uh, because it's easy to get on a soapbox and be like, the, 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 um, the bourgeoisie is exploiting the proletariat. Uh, yeah. Or well, that, the other way around the pearl no, no, that's right. okay um, yeah um and that where is what i think the the, the common uh rebuttal to that is now is they there has to be something done about the rich like that's what most of um most people see, seem to think uh and i tend to agree with you that here and um, that this is doing something um it it creates a system that's fair and that will in turn allow for a more even distribution of money um and also a more effective distribution of money um where i think what people don't realize is no matter how many laws and rules and um things that you make up that you think are advantage are giving advantages to the rich uh, or to the poor and um, it's just proven not to be the case uh, the more of these laws and stuff that we put in place uh, more and more disadvantages have come to those who are poor and more advantages have go gone to those who are rich um in and we've been trying it seems like they've politicians have been talking about for 20 years trying to take from the rich and give to the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, you know, we had the largest gap, uh, pay gap or largest gap in um, wages across the United States that we've ever had. And so I think that really speaks to the truth of this. Like 
those people who are in power will use their advantages and and they can do it in a very in very sneaky ways uh and so minimizing their levers that they can pull for those advantages is how you uh is how you end up with a fairer society it's never going to be a society that everybody has the same thing because even if that did happen, it would all crumble and break um, from the people, from the greed of people that want to have something more. Uh, and so I think that this at least sets up a society where we can all thrive together uh, instead of a society where I feel like, um, you know, one hate is so con- uh, all consumed by everyone. Um, and, and also uh, there there's these many, many levers that um, people in power can use to keep their power and keep their money. Yeah, I think there's a ton of, to your point, there's a ton of misdirected anger right now. You're not mad that people are wealthy. You're mad that people are unfairly, that the rules don't apply the same to them yes. as they do to you. You're, yes. they're taking advantage of uh, uh, the government's monopoly on violence um, to uh, favor themselves. And you have uh, barriers that you shouldn't have. Also, the reason for that is government um, that keep you from, um increasing your net worth and becoming one of those rich people. So you're not mad at richness or wealth fundamentally. You're mad at the rules don't apply the same equally to everyone. And so are we. Uh, so make sure that the the anger towards income disparity is directed at the right place, which is government. Yes. Well, I mean, um, and that, um, yeah, that, that's the thing. There's a, this big confusion that exists now that, that rich people are evil uh, and, and I'm not saying that they're not, and that some of them aren't, but th- they're allowed to be through the system that they're within, that they're living within, uh, and they utilize certain things to their advantage. Um, and so I, I think you're totally right that people have misdirected their anger at saying like, all of these rich people are doing this to us when they're just, necess- they're just utilizing what is at their exposure. Operating uh, on disposal. incentives. Yeah, operating yeah, on their incentives, like everyone else, like mm-hmm. any any other person, um, and they they are they've got more incentives. I mean, you can go back to what was the stock the stock market thing where the Reddit people on Reddit were trying to uh, uh, they were taking down the GameStop, the- yeah, GameStop thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for for you for those of you who know about that, and um, th- this is a perfect example of how they can manipulate the rules and make it and speak about it. Like they're trying to help the poor, but really uh, it's just another advantage for the rich. Um, When that was going on, they said that they needed to shut down access to all of the, uh, yeah, to access to, to being able to trade these stocks because the poor people who had put their money in had the, could have had the ability to lose all of this money. And so they said that they were doing something good for the poor, but what ended up happening, happening was that the rich people that could trade this at above $200,000 a year, uh, they could still make the trades and the poor people couldn't. And so they got all their money. The rich people got all their money back and the poor people lost their money all, all behind this one rule that they said was to help the poor. And I think that's, the same thing that we're fighting against here is Mm -hmm. we're saying no matter what the rules are, if they're not fair for everyone, they will be taken advantage of by those who understand the system better than those who don't. Yeah. It's funny how often the the government breaks your legs and then gives you a wheelchair and says that they're helping. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Yes. Yeah. It's a great Um, point. uh, 
so uh, yeah, let's get in. Let's get into the foundational rules of private property here, and there's a lot to expand upon. But um, and, I, and I'm quoting the Uncommunist Manifesto here. There's probably slight deviations in how uh, Austrian economists and, and libertarians or individualists define private property, but I think this is probably a good start. Go ahead and just uh, describe because uh, what uh, what do you mean by Austrian versus uh, like libertarian? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of libertarians or individualists, uh, pro-liberty people, uh, fall into the Austrian uh, economics camp, um, which, oh man, that's a real rabbit hole. But um, I, I think the big debate in economics now is uh, this this the battle between the Austrian economics and the Keynesian economics uh, economists, um, and the Austrians. Um, operate on the basis of, of praxeology and human behavior. Um, they say uh, economies can't be centrally planned and modeled because there's too much data to take in and value is subjective and things like that. Uh, and the, the Keynesians are proponents of modern monetary theory and that the economy can be managed by centralizing the money and doing a lot of central planning and you can print your way out of problems and that uh, human behavior can be modeled um, which uh, has shown to not be true, but because Keynesian economics has done so well and been taught in so many schools, because it in because it uh, it validates attempts at increasing government power. Um, so of course it's going to be favored by politicians and institutions because if you it's basically brown nosing and, and validating yeah. the existence of governments and bureaucracies. And uh, so of course it's going to be favored in, in Austrians, uh, even though the, the, all of the data is on their side. Uh, it's been not demonized, but uh, pushed into the shadows a little bit um, because it's not good for the health of the state. Yeah. And that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, that makes uh, actually perfect sense. Um, and and you can obviously easily see why uh, one is pushed and, and the other is not. Um, it, it just, um, it's weird because I've, I've never even heard of Austrian economics before uh, earlier today. Um, and so it's a, it's a new term. But, uh, and that's, well, I'm, but that's I'm glad you isn't that odd that, you know, that that wouldn't be something that we at least be taught somewhere throughout our schooling yeah. life. Yeah, and I'm not saying that like uh, your economics 101 class is just like Keynesian indoctrination. Like I think a lot uh, of economics it, 101, you don't even get deep enough into economics to really draw yeah. a distinction between the two. You're like figuring out what supply and demand models are and, and price yeah. models and basic things like that. But um, uh, yeah, the famous Austrian ec economists are also some of the most prominent liber libertarians um, like Ludwig von, Ludwig von Mises um, and Murray Rothbard. Um mm. I think you could say like Milton Friedman was probably an Austrian or Austrian adjacent. So a lot of great minds out there. Um, and uh, I don't know the original term of why they're Austrians. I think there was probably, um, I think a lot of them were from Austria. There was a prominent economic school in uh, somewhere in Austria. And that's why they call it that. But um, uh, yeah, so I'll kind of use those terms interchangeably, but that's content for another episode. Um, but can we get into the rules here real quick? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, and I'm quoting from the book here, rule number one of private property fundamentals is that each individual owns themselves for they, their thoughts and their mind are their primary form of private property. Wow. What a beautiful quote and what a beautiful rule. Yeah. It's hard to argue against so that, common. right? Well, it just seems like common sense, right? Like, uh, I mean, 
obviously, I, I feel like this is something that just speaks true to you when you think about it uh, and read through it. Each individual owns themselves for they, their thoughts and their mind are the primary form of their property, of private property. That's you, your private, private thoughts, your mind and uh, yourself is you and it's yours. Uh, and that just seems like complete common sense. But yet uh, we don't always treat it like that in the world that we live in. Uh, uh, would you, you first hear it, you're thinking, oh, this is like fluffy, abstract um, language. But you're like, no, there are giant violations of the seemingly common sense and agreed upon principle. Um, if each individual owns themselves and their thoughts and their mind, uh, the entire drug war is a violation of this first rule. Yes. You, you can't yes. own yourself and then ha it be illegal for you to consume certain things or yeah. <laughs> uh, alter or alter your mind in a certain way. If you own your mind and your consciousness, you have, you're the only person that should be allowed to alter that consciousness. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, you, you're the only one that should be able to alter that consciousness. So there's another thing that I think you could go into, like, um, to be manipulated uh, is kind of against that. Um, but, but more importantly, the, to be able to utilize certain things that I think people are coming around to see is like, oh, this is very obvious. Um, but for 40, 40 years in our country, this was not an obvious fact. And people um, stood on the grounds of like, we should keep, uh, we should make these things illegal for anybody that utilizes them, even if they're not hurting someone else. Uh, and we went into this on our drug podcast as well. Um, but this, it, to me, this is uh, just, it's so frustrating that this even has to be said. Um, because, you know, it's very obvious, but yet it's one of the most infringed upon things within our society. I feel like there, uh, constantly there are laws uh, that are created that, that doesn't say that you own your thoughts. This is where freedom of speech comes from. It's embedded within this. Um, and we've seen uh, the freedom of speech be infringed upon uh, a lot in the last mm -hmm. few years. Um, and and this is this is really where it is embedded within is you own yourself, you own your mind, you own your thoughts. Um, and then I, I wonder what your thoughts are on when you start when you speak them out loud. Do you lose that right? Or is that embedded within this? Because in my mind, it has to be. Uh, no, you maintain your ability to to speak it. Um, uh, the, I'm I'm sympathetic to arguments that. Uh, speaking certain thoughts that can plausibly create a threat of aggression against somebody else can be interpreted as like uh, assault or, or dangerous or a violation of the zero aggression principle. Um, like if you're imminently, th if, if the thoughts and in, in the words that you say, uh, say, I'm going to commit violence against you uh, mm. uh, now and I'm holding a gun, like, Okay, well, uh, you might have the the right to say it, but you're also, um, you can be reasonably prosecuted for that, or you can be reasonably viewed as violating somebody else's uh, rule number one, uh, their own individual self, um, by saying that because you're threatening them. Um, but uh, it, I think this is an episode for down the road, and one of the things I haven't totally figured out myself is like there's a strong uh, cohort of libertarians and individualists that believe that intellectual property protections shouldn't exist at all. Uh, patents, trademarks, none of that should exist and it would lead I, to a better society. I have one of those. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating like thought experiment and a fascinating debate. Um, I'm not, I, 
I go back and forth on it and I'm not sure exactly where I land, but um, yeah, you can't claim ownership over your thoughts after you speak them out loud because then they enter and become the thoughts of somebody else. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I definitely would agree. I, I agree with that in theory is uh, I think that uh, it causes more problems than it causes good as well. I mean, if it just comes back to like that basic ethic of like, we want good for everyone. And I think what you'll see with patents and stuff is they're creating these beautiful things. And then uh, instead of going on to create more beautiful things, they spend their money protecting that one thing. Um, and, and I think that when you have a beautiful thought, when you have a beautiful idea, the point of it is to share it in the most efficient way with everyone. Um, and I think that it's just kind of, I don't know. It, it's very selfish. I feel like to but the, keep the, everyone else the, from the utilizing it. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I and I know this is. It kind of goes against. Like, I mean, that in this, it states that it's like your thought. It's your mind. Uh, it's your primary form of property. Um, but I, I, I agree. Once you speak it into the ethos, once you write it down, once you create what you're going to create, if you can't continually make that product better than anyone else that can create it i feel like i i just don't see how that's beneficial for anybody i feel like it holds back progress because now instead of someone creating something that's similar but slightly better that you have a patent on a certain part of it and they are kept from utilizing um, that part of your technology in order to improve the rest of society. So if you think about this with drugs, or if you think about this, like we, what, what diseases could we cure if certain technologies weren't patented only by individual um, companies? What um, different tools could we improve if uh, certain components weren't patented by companies that don't have any uh, idea or any reason to improve upon their own uh, current patent or their own current idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, more negatives than it is good, but I do understand the basis of like the, the right to your own idea and the profits that it might incur over time. Um, But I, I'm not sure that that's correct. Yeah, and this is this is kind of getting into rule number two here, and uh, but um, in terms of uh, intellectual property and things like that. But the the distinction here is that uh, let's say the your thoughts you write down your thoughts on a piece of paper uh, that turn into a book. Um, this rule number one, or we'll list rule number two here in a second, but. Um, it's not a violation of rule number one uh, that somebody else would copy your book or sell your book or something because uh, the the book that you created based on your thoughts is still your private property, but that doesn't grant you monopoly, a monopoly on selling words printed in that order that convey your thoughts. Um, yeah. So like it, it, this is the difference between patents and like it, just because somebody else is selling that your thoughts in the form of a book um, that doesn't no longer it doesn't remove your ability to sell your own books Um, it just doesn't grant you monopoly power on that arrangement of words and thoughts does that make sense let's get we're getting and i understand like i understand the advantages that would exist because of that to me there's just more advantages for everyone as a whole if things could be improved upon freely 
Yeah, and, and the, the common counter argument to that is uh, an incentive based one that if um, there were no monopoly protections on uh, a song or a book or um, a product that was easy to imitate that people would not be incentivized to create it in the first place because there's going to be um, so many other competitors that um, take that idea and, and make profit on their own from it and if you can't disincentivizing you from creating it in the first place. But if you can't do something well, then like well enough to where, like I, I still think, especially in today's day and age, if you wrote a book and a bunch of people emulated it, it, if you do it well enough, you will have, that'll be your, everybody will know you created it. It's still going to be a signature um, that as if you sell it well, if you do your business well, if you, if you do things correctly it'll still you'll still end up getting all the credit for it and today's day, day and age if anything it will just make you vastly more popular and, va and be able to monetize a, a larger audience um, because you don't have to necessarily pay for all of the copies of your book that is going out uh, and so i think that it can kind of go both ways i understand why i could disincentivize certain people from doing that um, but i feel like that's just lazy on their part because if you if you can do something and you're talented at it and you're more talented than everyone else at it, you'll still be the one that has a strong monopoly on the product. Uh, it's when you create an idea and you aren't, uh, you know, the best at it, that some that you can have that fear of somebody else coming along and doing it better. Uh, and, and I think that that's probably how it should happen. If they can do it better then they should be the one that makes the money off of it. Yeah. I think I think the emergence of the internet and digital communication is the strongest argument against um, uh, um, uh, intellectual property protections like patents and trademarks um, yeah. because of the dynamic that you just mentioned that people will want to support the original source as long as the original source is competent um, and that there's a lot of uh, like fame and money to be made from being the expert or the originator of these thoughts in that field. Um, but this is getting kind of getting down in a intellectual yeah, a little protection rabbit, rabbit hole. But um, and, and rule two kind of lines up with what we've been talking about a little bit. And so I'll quote that now. Um, rule two is that um, is that which an individual creates or produces using their time, energy, or the resources they've appropriated through voluntary trade. Or caveat here: the that which are yet to be claimed may become their private property. Um, so this has some big implications too. Um, some of the ones that we just talked about uh, in terms of intellectual property, but I think this is the foundation for the uh, libertarian bumper sticker that taxation is theft. Yeah. Because yeah. if an individual creates or produces something using their time, their energy or their resources, so that, you know, you could say that's their labor, um, an individual creating something with their labor may become their private property. Not yet. And so if it's, if the fruits of your labor are your private property, no one else should be able to violate your private property. And the role of government is to uphold your ownership of that private property. Yes, so that's why 100%. taxation is theft. And it, it, and I think no matter how you think about it, it, it definitely, uh, maybe at one time, you know, the, if the people, uh, the way that our system is set up, if the people all agree to, um, to these tax taxes, and uh, then maybe at one time, like you could make the argument that 
and this is an agreed upon trade off of your resources for yes. the things that um, you're getting in return. Problem with now is there's so many, so many things that me or you or anyone else in this country had no say in in creating. There's so many taxes that we don't have any ability to um, manipulate that they are just when I mean, they just sent billions of dollars to Ukraine that uh, I didn't personally agree with. And I know a lot of pe- other people that didn't personally agree with that. Uh, and so my money is going to uh, to Ukraine to help something that I don't necessarily agree with to kill people <laughs> that I don't agree with. Um, and it's my property and I have the right to feel like that's my property that's being utilized mm-hmm. uh, and they don't have the right to take it and do things with it like that um, because it creates this uh, tyrannical problem of like you get to decide what happens with my property and there's a monopoly a on the decision making process. And, and so if you just think about it from a, a basis of ethical standards, like, is that okay? Would it be okay if someone did, if if take out the government's name out of it, but if someone was utilizing your money to do something that you didn't agree with, uh, is that okay? Do you feel like that's right? I don't think anybody would think that that's right or good. Um, And so maybe there are some necessities and that's probably the big argument against it is like, do you always know what's best for you? Uh, But I, I don't think that that's a good argument against it because it's not about necessarily do I know it's my money, so I get to decide. And yeah. I think that that's the, the ultimate freedom in that. Yeah, you knowing what's best for you has nothing to do with it. How do you know that they know what's it? best it's, for me? What makes them have a higher percentage chance of knowing what's better for me? Yeah, I, if, if we agree on rule one that each individual owns themselves, then it doesn't matter what's best for them. Somebody else knowing better for them doesn't change rule number one. Um, and, and there's a the taxation is theft thing is, you know, this big provocative bumper sticker, but it's objectively true. And it's yeah. separate from the claim that taxes shouldn't exist. I think you can, uh, we as a society have taxes and uh, apparently the consensus is that we are going to forego this objective truth. Uh, We acknowledge that uh, taxation is theft, that's an objective truth, but we're willing to violate this private property rule or this private property truth uh, in exchange for what it gives us, which is allegedly infrastructure, security, law, all this. And that's where you should have a system that's where you should have a system that rewards like an, a fair trade because that's really what it is. It's like, I want to trade my freedom or my uh, individual property yeah. for, if for I'm, safety, for whatever you want to trade it for. If I'm going to give up my rights, I at least want something for it. Yes. And, and we should have a say because it is my money, because it is my property. I should have a say in what happens with this property, with this money. And that was the whole institution that the United States was built upon. The problem is we've become so diluted because there's so many more people now that the system can no longer congregate what the people's desires are as a whole into into, um, a fair trade that makes Mm -hmm. people happy, which is why we're arguing, or at least I think that we're arguing for uh, a broken down system in smaller governments, if governments at all. Um, uh, that can really hone in on a fair trade of our private property for um, a fair return. And I think that that just makes sense for everybody. It's not just your, your it's not just the problem that a uh, population has increased. And so the, your, uh, um, your vote 
is is less represented, but it's also the size, scope, and spending of government has increased so much, and they're they have their hand in so many more aspects of your life um, that you're that over the last few hundred years, our vote has meant less and less. It's become less and less of a representative democracy. And the way to fix that is to decentralize it again, downscale it again, uh, yeah. like it was in the past. And we get closer. This is why um, um, well, that's how it was local, local elections mean more over your life and you have more influence over them than the national elections. Well, that's how it was supposed to be. I mean, and how it was largely viewed in, you go back to the Civil War times, and each one of those states viewed themselves as a state, not as the country as a whole. Um, they they very much uh, looked at themselves as their governing power over their states individually, which I still think is too large. Um, but it's it it was a more fair and uh, and people enjoyed that living process a lot more because they felt like their property was getting traded for something that was actually at least in agreement with the majority of people that live within their, uh, you know, within their surroundings, within their community. And now I feel like there's an anger that exists within our country um, simply because that's not happening for so many uh, at different times. Uh, and so like, I don't think any of us agree with a lot of these taxes and where the money goes. Uh, and so instead of, instead of just continually piling on taxes, we, we don't ever even go back and say like, should we have this or should we not? There's no, once a taxation is put placed and put in place to take care of something, it never gets uh, re revoted on. It never gets looked at again. Uh, and so we just keep adding and adding and adding and we keep diluting our private property. That's what you're doing when you're agreeing, not agreeing, but when they're stealing these taxes from you uh, is they're diluting your private property and your self-worth uh, in for something that they want to accomplish. Uh, and, and so it's, I mean, it's kind of tyrannical when you think about it. It's not, there's nothing about it that is fair. There's nothing about it that is good. Right. Um, and, and so I, I'm not willing to really have the take people seriously that argue that taxation isn't theft anymore. Um, yeah. I, I, you need to acknowledge that. And then we pivot the argument to like, okay, it is theft, but you know, should, should we allow this exception uh, in individual property rights, I don't know, for the greater good or whatever you're going to yeah. call it for to, to fund things that you think make a better society. Um, and uh, the problem then becomes like, you're you're forcing that decision upon everyone instead of letting people opt in and opt out and so uh that the immorality comes from forcibly removing property rights from people and it could be as simple like you said as simple as opt in opt out like we all think that we need roads or whatever so it, what we would like to do is have private um, companies that, that could institute these things. But if you have to do it on a government standard and we all agree that we need roads and if you want to use the roads, like you're going to allocate your taxes. I think like with war, I think that they should have to raise money from the people. There shouldn't be any government money that is sent for wars. Like if you're if, if we're going to go over into another country and start a war, it should be enough of a problem that the people all agree or enough people agree to give you enough money to go do what you need to do. Um, and if you can't raise that money, then it shouldn't happen. Um, because I think that's where a lot of our money is getting sucked up into um, right now. And uh, there's other programs that are equally as um, you know negative for our 
against our private property. Um, but I think that's the one that at least irk, irks me the most. Yeah, and this is this is why Bitcoin's so beautiful. Um, you, you can't um, because printing money is a violation of private property too. Because every printed dollar, this comes from Robert Breedlove mostly, but yes, uh, every 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 printing of every single dollar is is robbing private property from you because it is diluting the value of your private of your property dollar. of the money that you have. Um, so um, the the Federal Reserve and the central bank are inherent private property violators. And that's why uh, Bitcoin so beautiful is not only does it um, possible because it's because of its hard cap of 21 million, no more can ever be created or printed. Um, it It's a perfect preservation of uh, property rights. And if the government wanted to go to war, they would have to fund it by getting people to hand over hand over their Bitcoin, or even if it was through taxation, it creates this like finite revenue stream that they can't spend more than because how how would you spend more than it? Um, I guess you could go into debt, but then you got to convince people to, um, you know, buy your assets. Uh, but it, it just becomes so much harder to fund war uh, if you have a hard money standard or Bitcoin standard. Yeah. And that, so the evilness that uh, I think most people agree on nowadays is like that if you you don't want certain politicians making decisions um, based off of certain powers that they might have in the future. Uh, so they, you don't want politicians saying, yes, I'll go to war so that I can't, so that this company can make a lot of money off of this war. Um, and, and I feel like at least from my perspective that that's happening now. And so now we're diluting our own money uh, in a war that is not necessary uh, and even if you do feel like it's necessary, it's definitely overcharged. If you ask any person that's been in the military, um, you know, the, the operations that they're using, the products that they're using in the operational cost is about 90% higher than what it could be or what it should be, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is because there's, there's no necessary like accountability for this. So they're printing new dollars. They're taking all of these new dollars and, giving them to these foundations of, uh, you know, these uh, war found war companies um, like Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's our money and in the name of protection of the state, but it's also done inefficiently at the same time. And so it's like a double violation of your property. They're stealing your money, they're diluting your money, um, and they're spending it inefficiently for something that a lot of people don't agree with. And so like all of that put together um, creates a, a really negative system to to live within. Uh, and we haven't questioned it in a long time, which is odd to me. Yeah. It... Uh, people have accepted it as normal or they're so used to it but how many different violations of one property right could you do you need before you realize that it's uh not not only not ideal but completely immoral um i think people just like i had the caveat at the beginning that a lot of people don't know what private property rights are like the reason we're having to clarify this just shows um how little people think about these foundational rights and what the implications are um Let's uh, move on to the third one here. I, th- I think this might end up being a two-parter. We'll see how it goes. But uh, rule number three here is that an individual must survive. And as such, their action is generally directed towards self-preservation in the immediate term first, followed mm-hmm. by the same across longer time horizons. So I'll read that one more time. An individual must survive, and as such, their action is generally directed towards self-preservation in the immediate term first, 
followed by the same across longer time horizons. Um, so I think the a different way to say this is that um, individuals uh, through by nature of existence and being alive and having evolved to this point are naturally self-interested. That does, There's a huge distinction here between self-interested and selfish. Um, yes. Being self-interested doesn't automatically imply negative outcomes for anybody else. It just means that we've evolved to stay alive <laughs> and yes. to, to take actions that keep us alive. And, um, and keeping ourselves alive follows a certain priority. Uh, we are we have to make sure that we're going to stay alive in the moment first and then in the very near term and then in the longer term as time goes out in that order. Um, you're not going to do something that might keep you alive 10 years from now at the expense of something that might keep you alive now. You're going to value keeping yourself alive now. And then as you become more secure in keeping yourself alive now, you will shift the the goalposts further into the future. Like a bottoms up approach for survival. Yes. And like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That yeah, hierarchy yeah. of needs. Mm -hmm. same, yeah, exactly. Same thing. And uh, and I don't think that there's anything selfish about um, being uh, uh, being self. Uh, what self the word? Well, self-interested. Self-interested. Um, it's it's just the truth of how people live and how people act is you obviously are self-interested. Most everyone is self-interested. I look at myself as loving all other people, but at the same time, I have my own self-interest interest in survival. Um, and I, I think this is a beautiful right, uh, a beautiful rule because it speaks to how we should be doing things, um, at how our government should be looking at us, but it also speaks to how we should be living. If we all are taking care of what's in front of us, what is our life, doing our life to the best of our ability, and uh, making sure that we're doing our jobs, to, you know, in a in a way that is is good for us, uh, and not worried necessarily about everyone else around us. Uh, you know, I think it's better for everyone. And I think if you can live freely in that way, uh, I think that it ends up having a huge positive impact on the world at large. Um, and it may not seem like the best way to do that is uh, is by having self interest, but I think. Uh, in the long run, it definitely is. And there's um, many uh, psychologists that also speak to this point uh, about how whether you like it or not, everyone is doing things in the best of their own self-interest. Yeah, and I, th I think people tend to assume moral guilt um, right away when they find themselves admitting that, oh, shit, I am acting in my self-interest. But I don't think that should exist at all. Um, we, not only is it evolutionary, like we wouldn't have, survive to this point if we weren't self-interested it's a survival mechanism yes. um but if you if you want to get all weird and abstract about it like caring caring for others can be and is yes. self-interested self yeah, yeah. Yes. and, and do, doing nice good for your life yeah or um the the feelings of joy and self-satisfaction and fulfillment that you yes. get from helping other people also in a certain way benefits you and makes you feel more actualized so i, I just think a lot of people look at this fundamentally wrong that um yeah. to imply that there's anything negative about being self-interested not only right. is not, not only is it not wrong but there literally isn't another way to be <laughs> Yeah, you're just uh, in denial. You're just in yeah, de denial. Yeah. If, you don't, if you don't admit that you're self-interested, you're just in in denial. Yeah, and, it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like like you said, there, if anything, acting good towards others and doing good things for others is uh, one of the most self-interested 
ideas because you're creating a better environment around yourself. Uh, your life will be better in, in every way. Uh, and so, but to act like you're doing it for any other reason is just a lie. And it's just yeah. not true. <laughs> so, so liberate yourself from uh, feeling guilty about that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we present a rule number three there. Um, uh, do you want to dive into these other points here or do you want to call it and yeah, uh, can, do a two part? We can dive in. We okay. can dive in. All right, cool. So I, I mentioned in rule number three there that the, you know, we're self-interested uh, now and in the near term. And then we're, once we figure that out, we're self-interested um, uh, in longer time horizons. So this is what we call, um, time preference. Um, it's referenced a lot in Aust Austrian economics and libertarianism and, and Bitcoin too, really. Um, so this third rule always illustrates that now always outweighs later. But as we solve for now, we can begin to expand our perspective and lengthen our time horizon and think more about later. Um, and this maybe seems obvious, but there's all kinds of implications Great. to this. It's crazy that we don't do this all the time anyways well, we've it's, gotten f far away from it for very specific reasons but i think it's a sh like the short like the shortcut mentality like we feel like we can just jump to the good things in the future without taking care of what needs to be done now um mm -hmm. and, and it, uh, it it when modeled out it just doesn't work out that way um but the thought process is like oh i want all of these things um, and I want to get to them, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, but it, it doesn't talk of, it doesn't necessarily help you with the now. And I think of it more as like, you need to make a sacrifice, like a, a sacrifice on, on the short term in order to get to your long-term goals. And if your focus isn't in the present, then you're not going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, you must you must reach a certain amount of satisfaction in the present, um, and then beyond, beyond that point, like um, that's why hedonism is demonized. It's like it's it's all it's it's all of your um, self interestedness on the present at at the expense of the future. Um, but once you reach a, a certain amount of satisfaction in the present, um, it's probably in your best self interest to quit adding to the pile of now and start adding to piles for the future. Um, and yes. so I, I think this time preference concept is, uh, shows itself most in, in money and the, in the corruption of money. And, um, the reason people are doing a worse and worse job, um, about being self-interested for the long term, whether you want to measure that in debt uh, or savings or uh, beautiful architecture and, and strong buildings that last hundreds of years, yeah. or people not planting trees that you know they're not going to get to enjoy, but their grandkids get to enjoy. Just this long-term thinking um, seems to oh, always boil down to the perversion and the corruption of money uh, through yeah. the central bank and the state and centrally planned economies. I mean, I think it's almost like it's disappeared from our lives in the last, you know, few hundred years. You used to see beautiful buildings everywhere. The architecture um, was well designed. The art um, was built to last. Uh, the beauty of the art and the music um, was written uh, uh, with such care and such delicacy. Uh, the every every aspect of our society businesses um were built for a long-term ability an ability to stay around and be there for your children your children's children mm -hmm. um, and and now uh, people have such a short time preference and our government i feel like has been at the at the at the onset of all of this 
Um, but the, nowadays people, they create the buildings that can last them long enough to get through their, you know, their, whatever time frame they're looking at. Normally it's just a few years. Uh, their businesses are probably only going to last a few years. So they borrow, borrow, borrow as much money as they can. So they can hopefully sell it before it crashes. Um, the government does this in a huge way. We've from since the eighties, just been borrowing as much money as we possibly can so that pol politicians can continue to get reelected and can fulfill their promises without, uh, you know, the possible impacts of the future and the implications that it carries. Uh, and now we're facing all of these implications all at once. Uh, and it's, it's coming at people right in their face. And I think that they are starting to understand it. Uh, I just hope that it's not too late uh, to, to revert back. And I don't think it is because I think we pointed out some beautiful, um, escape plans, escape hatches, mm -hmm. um, with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, we do need to wake up quickly. And I, to me, this is like a call to action. Like everybody needs to wake up as quick as possible because we're get we're digging ourselves into a giant hole, um, that can, can end up being, it can end up putting us all in the desert of just lost, uh, confused and uh, unable to find our way back out. But right now we still have that understanding of like what it used to be. And so while we still have that understanding of like what beauty is and um, what a good economy can look like if, if done correctly, uh, when we haven't forgotten uh, that what inflation really is um, before any of these things happen, like let's step up and like switch to a system that allows for this type of time preference. Yeah. And, and so point. many of the, the, pro the problems that you laid out, people, um, people aren't behaving that way because they're hedonists. They're doing it out of survival. Uh, yeah. people are making these, uh, survival short-term decisions at the expense of good decisions long-term um, because the money has been destroyed because you, in order to preserve money used to, used to just inherently preserve capital or uh, be a store of value over time. The U S dollar yeah. has completely lost one of the fundamental characteristics of money as being a store of value. And yes. because the, of that truth, people have to move far out onto the risk curve to try to reinstate that fundamental characteristic that money is a store of value. You used to be able to just store your money in uh, gold or the US dollar itself. Um, and, and now you have to uh, create speculative investments or um, this is how we got shitty buildings. You, uh, you can't put money into buildings um, because that would be at the expense of riskier investments that you invest in to preserve your capital. Like there's so many foundational problems with destroying the money. Um, and that's hindered our ability to be self-interested further out on the time curve. Um, and uh, it used to be $10,000. You could put away $10,000, uh, for, you know, a year. Um, and that money, you know, you say you do that for 10 years and, um, uh, you, you know, you have fifty thousand dollars in in stockpiled for you and your family if something happens. Well, now in that ten years, ten thousand dollars is has been inflate or deflated so much that it's worth fifty thousand dollars. It ends up being worth ten thousand dollars. So you just sit, spent ten year or five years saving ten thousand dollars a year, and at the end of that five years, your money is worth the exact same as what it was at the beginning. And so it's like, why do I even do this? Why would I? 
why would I create something uh, that cre create this stockpile of, of money or why would I create this stockpile of goods when it's going to lose so much value over the, that time that it was like, it was a waste of time. Uh, and so, like you said, you have to make these extremely risky plays and go into extreme debt just for this shot. And that's why 90, what is it? 95% of businesses fail within the first five years. You have to take these extreme risk and, and borrow this extreme amount of money just for a chance at being able to make enough money to keep up with the amount of inflation that exists around you. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, sometimes that uh, the shifting time preference to the present manifests in more dangerous ways than just not saving money. Like uh, yeah. the most uh, a crazy extreme example of valuing the present over the future is doing a huge dose of heroin. Um, yeah. Because, you know, that will take care, that's self, self-preserving in the short term at the expense of self-preservation in the long term. Or uh, if you, if um, you're more desperate in the present to be financially stable, you'll rob a bank or rob a CBS yes. um, at the expense of the risk of long-term, you know, uh, you'll get the money now, but that might mean jail time or a criminal record or something in the long term. So it's, it can be serious guys. It's not just, uh, it's not just this uh, nice, polite, white law abiding people, either building up savings or not building up savings. Um, sometimes it manifests in like, this is how it manifests in drug overdoses if yes. and, and robberies and crime and selling selling anything illegally is people just valuing the present because they have to because they haven't figured that out enough to be able to uh allow, to the move themselves further down the, the time horizon and I, and I don't even think that they necessarily have the time preference of being able to value the present it's the when you say value the present i think people currently they make risks for the future, like they, they're trying to jump to a place where things are okay. Uh, what you're speaking of is when you value the present so that you can value the future, um, it has to be allowed within the system. So I feel like this is a hard Great concept point. to understand within the current system that we have, um, because it's so far away from what's possible with our current system of money. It goes back to incentives is like consumer debt is at decades highs because um, people aren't incentivized to leave instead of accumulate debt to buy things. Um, people aren't incentivized to leave it in cash or even take like risky bets or like use money as a store of value right now because it, it isn't anymore. So uh, the options people are presented with are um, I can buy this stereo or this car now uh, with this $20,000 or I can put it in the bank and this 20,000 can lose value over time. So I might It'll as well fucking buy the car because like, at least I get the car out of it now. Um, but if I, if I try to save this, uh, my money's going to be worth less over time. So having money car. be a store of value, exactly. I'll be able to buy less car in the future if I don't buy it now. And so that just, in again, people operate on incentives with the way the money is set up. Now people are disincentivized to save because it's going to be worth less in the future, or they have to take crazy risks uh, to pres simply preserve their capital or hopefully make some money um but they're also incentivized to spend or spend now because like that that debt you accumulate like the money's worth now more than it is later 100 percent, and i think that uh we could find our way free of this uh i hope that i know this is probably an extremely hard concept for anybody that hasn't dove, dove into this so i would i would recommend if you haven't go back and listen to our bitcoin 
um, podcast and it'll uh, really dive. It really dives into this matter. Uh, I don't remember which one. Do you remember which one that was? Uh, no, not the number. Um, we, um, we mentioned Bitcoin a few times throughout and we'll bring it up more again. Like we, we're going to circle back to Bitcoin soon, but yeah, but that, that really goes into this really deeply. Um, so you can really understand this negative effect that, uh, that if you, if you don't, if the time preference is not allowed in the system to be, to flourish, um, this idea of a, a short to long-term, uh, if that's not allowed, then you'll see things crumble around you. And we've seen, um, we've seen countries fall because of this. And I think that we're starting to see uh, our country fall because of this, um, just for the exact reasons that you you said here, it's people are gonna be you know making these extremely risky, problematic decisions uh, for short-term happiness, like doing drugs and buying uh, luxurious items and uh, you know going to Vegas and spending all of their money because it's not gonna be worth anything tomorrow. And are, are we not seeing that everywhere today? Like that, that to me, that's so prevalent in our society comparatively to 20 years ago. And it's because of the exact thing that we're talking about. It's it's not just that people have changed their minds. It's that the system around them has changed to where there is almost no benefit uh, in into making long term good decisions, um, it, because they aren't good decisions anymore. They 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 technically are bad decisions within the system that we have for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, I. I uh... I think I think that might be a decent place to wrap it up. We've we've gone through um, three fundamental rules of private property and um, kind of the back half of this conversation. We wanted to show how okay um, now that we've established these fundamental rules, how do economies naturally arise given this really really consistent moral solid foundation of of private property rights. Um, but I think that's too long of a conversation to sh shove into the end of this. We want to do it uh, give it its uh, its deserved time. Um, yeah, let's so, definitely go into that one next time because I think that's, uh, yeah. uh, or at least sometime in the future, that's a, a, a beautiful concept. And uh, I think it paints a really good picture for people to see like there is a light at the end of this tunnel and it is possible for us to get back to uh, being a thriving uh, and enjoyable society where, you know, we can get back to making this beautiful art and paint and building these beautiful buildings um, and, and, you know, making businesses that will last for generations to come. Uh, and, you know, creating ideas uh, that can flourish for long periods of time, being willing to risk, you know, 100 years of, of work to build beautiful um, buildings, to go to space, to do, uh, to explore the universe and uh, to enjoy the world that we have uh, to its full potential. But it starts with, and, you know, we do have to break down the system that we have currently because it's not going to work uh, with the way that we're doing things, uh, doing things now. And, um, you know, it, it always comes back to uh, you can't give too much over to your government uh, because they're not very good at what you allocate to them. They're not very good at using the resources that you've allocated to them. Uh, and remember that they are there. They are your resources. It is your money. Um, and, and this is your property. Yeah, and that's uh, it's such an empowering reframe um, mm -hmm. to 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 grasp your own self autonomy, um, and then if you, if you feel like you truly own your private property, whether it's you know yourself, your thoughts, or like the things around you, um, then self responsibility f follows so naturally from that. And when you succeed and grow with a solid foundation of private property rights and 
you feel prepared to take on more self-responsibility, um, that frees you up to help other people. And it's just so gratifying and, and satisfying along the way, you know, your, uh, your brain chemistry, uh, goes nuts. It's, it's dopamine every step of the way. It's like leveling up your character in a video game. You know, it's, a, it's, it's constant progress, but if the foundation is broken, um, you, you'll outsource your morality and you'll give up your rights and you'll wonder what the hell's going wrong. And you're wondering why you're losing money every single year in your bank account. So, um, yeah, I think this is a great foundation on which to build a society and, um, us pivoting to, uh, how economies naturally arise from this and how we can lead to a better world um, will clear up a lot of the misconceptions about capitalism and really will be able to illustrate how capitalism is naturally emergent. It is not this political process. It is not crony capitalism. It is not government uh, granting certain favors to some people and adding artificial barriers to entry to other people. Um, we uh, will illustrate next time we, we visit this, how this all just naturally and evolutionary, evolutionarily arises based on incentives. Yeah, stop giving, stop giving capitalism the credit your evil government deserved. Yeah, exactly. Misdirected anger again, right? Uh, back yes. to what we talked about at the beginning. Uh, well, hey guys, we got to leave it there. We're going to dive back into this, um, but we'd love to know what you think of these private property rules. Did you just think it was uh, uh, previous to us diving in here? Is this your first exposure to the concept of private property, especially as the foundation of society? Did you think it was some weird uh, like landowner antiquated type way of looking at things? Did you just think it was uh, attributed to real estate and not necessarily your own bodily autonomy and your thoughts and things like that. We'd love to hear. Yeah, from definitely. You. Yeah, definitely. Um, my first aspect of this was like, I thought, you know, this was definitely going to be like land and um, items that you have bought and owned. Right. And to hear that it's, it seems so obvious though, when you, as we went through is like, okay, yeah, obviously like my thoughts and my, my money, all of these things are mine. Um, and it just isn't ever shown to us in the world that we live in now. And uh, you, you don't feel that way anymore. And I, uh, I think this was like really refreshing to me to awesome. feel like, okay, like this is, this is my, these are my thoughts. This is my life. Um, and, and there's no more beautiful thought than that. It's like you, this is your human experience and you get to live it um, and, and stop giving it away and trading it away, uh, you know, for mm -hmm. things that you don't believe in. Yeah, this is empowering for yourself and it empowers you to help other people too. Who would have thought private property uh, would uh, uh, make the strongest, most sound argument for ending the drug war or yes. for uh, claiming that taxation is theft? You know, if you just glance at the words private property, you um, wouldn't naturally think that this would build a foundation for that. But that's why I love it as the foundation of, for the political philosophy that I believe in so much. Yeah. Um, so we would love to hear your guys' thoughts. Hit us up on Twitter, uh, you know, text us and call us. Um, a lot of you know us uh, personally, um, but we're on Instagram as well. And, um, uh, we're going to get back to posting regularly here. We've, uh, got a lot of ideas in the can that we're excited yeah, to talk we, about. We made these bonus episodes for you. So we're going to get them out to you pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah, we miss getting episodes out there regularly. So, all right, we'll be back with you guys, uh, here soon, hopefully a, a week or less. And, uh, we'll dive in. If not next time, we'll dive into very soon, um, how these foundational private property rights, lead to economic prosperity and with that oh, yeah. we'll Super let you guys we'll let you guys get to it thanks Steph. that was a great one appreciate it yeah that was great again <laughs>